Hello and welcome to Hot Topic and Chill with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Lorelai. I have been interacting with Lorelai for a couple of years now. She is on a certain specific trajectory of standing up for women's rights. She's also British, so British feminists have a particular pedigree which are dis- which is distinct from American feminists from what I've gathered. In this conversation, we very slowly, gently, patiently parlay about men and women and stereotypes. And it was actually this conversation, which we had a couple months ago, and I just didn't get around to publishing it until now. Thinking back on this conversation, I kind of had a thought about a certain argument from certain feminists against men calling women frigid. And I've never heard men actually call women frigid, which doesn't mean that men don't go around calling women frigid. But I have seen women going around and very quickly calling men creeps. And I was just thinking in this conversation how the sexes have different stereotypes uh, to call out certain behaviors. And I made a tweet just kind of offering that there might be some sort of compromise to be had in how easily we call people names, how easily we kind of box people in into these negative stereotypes in order to win arguments or in order to protect ourselves or for whatever reason, that's why we do these things. And that particular tweet got dogpiled on and uh, was dragged around the internet and used to uh, once again accuse me of being for rape and uh, for the murder of women and so on and so forth. So even asking for compromise within certain circles is totally worse than openly declaring your hatred of women. Uh, So, you know, it was just interesting to go back to this conversation and to see where that thought came from was a very patient, good faith discussion of us just kind of me and Lorelai just kind of wrestling and and looking through these issues. So this is much longer than a normal conversation. It is certainly a hot topic and chill. And so you should approach it accordingly. Without further ado, here is Lorelai. How are you doing? I'm doing, I'm quite nervous, actually. You know, I haven't done anything like this before. Okay. Um, so, I'm kind of nervous. What is this? What What is this? <laughs> Talking to you in public, I suppose. <laughs> Never done it before, Benjamin. Really? Well, no. But Do you ever speak to anybody in public? Well, I mean, I guess I suppose I do. But I am kind of a recluse because of my illness, so not hmm. often. Like, the people I talk to are people I know. So... Mm-hmm. I, I guess not, actually, no. So this is like a night out for me, Benjamin. <laughs> Wait, can you see me? I can see you, yeah. Okay. Well, then I'll be careful <laughs> with what my face shows. <laughs> um, you want to talk about your illness, or is that a secret? It's not really a secret. It's kind of why I got involved in the discussion, because I was already dealing with one medical scandal, and so I sort of saw the hallmarks of another. Hmm. So it sort of dragged me in. Okay. Medical scandal, huh? Yeah. Emmy is a massive medical scandal. It's a load of outrageousness, really. What is this called? Emmy? 
ME, yes. It stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis. And they had this outbreak in this hospital in the 50s. And then 20 years later, some psychiatrists who'd never met any of the patients decided that it was hysteria because most of the people who got sick were women. And it completely changed the direction of care. And so instead of looking for biomedical solutions, they looked for psychiatric solutions, which means that people are really sick and struggling. So it's been kind of a debacle. So it's not easily detectable outside? How it's, does it... detectable, it's detectable with very specific kinds of tests, but not the regular tests. If you have a blood test or something, they don't have the sort of ability to see it clearly. I think they will in five to ten years because they found that if they put normal blood with people with ME's blood, the blood gets not very good. But they can only do that in very specific kind of laboratories where they really know what they're looking for. Like a regular blood test is not going to show you. So they diagnose you by symptoms. Mm -hmm. But they then decided that the symptoms are a sign that we're all a bit nuts. But, you know, if we're nuts, it has nothing to do with our illness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the salient point, really. Well, do they still think of it that way, or have they updated yet their belief system? More and more doctors hypothesis? are beginning to realize, but there's quite the psych lobby, the people, I don't know whether they're called the psych lobby outside of ME circles, but the psychiatrists are very keen to hang on to it, because it's a moneymaker, of course. And quite a lot of the psychiatrists who are very keen to say that we are all just thinking negative thoughts are also the ones who advise the insurance companies. So they benefit if they can get people off benefits by saying, well, if they were just thinking more positively, they'd be fine. So they're not really sick. It's a sort of it's not a very nice arrangement there. Well, how does it manifest for you? Well, for me, I, I got it after vaccination, which one in a thousand people who have it do. It's very rare to get sick after vaccination. I think you're more likely to be hit by lightning. But I managed it. And I got sick within about an hour, hour and a half. And I managed to sort of keep going for about two and a half years. And I sort of, I thought things like the pain that I was in was just growing pains. And I just get more and more symptoms. And then I got this massive headache that lasted about three months. And I thought maybe it was something serious. And then I just sort of fell off the face of the earth. My body just stopped, stopped working really. And... I became housebound because I couldn't walk or do anything like that. Oh. And then after about a year, I became bedbound. And I was bedbound about seven years. And then really? I began to get better. And I can go little walks now and do, I can do things now. Like I can talk. I couldn't speak for several years. So my life is changing. Okay. But along came this fight. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> just at the along crucial came. juncture, really. <laughs> Along came what? This fight, just at the crucial juncture. A different scandal. Yeah, a different scandal. Yeah, I was hoping for like a really easy recovery where I got to read in the sun and <laughs> just do nice <laughs> things, but apparently no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when did when did you discover this other scandal? How long ago? Twenty eighteen. No, twenty seventeen maybe. Yeah, about that time. And the scandal is? Well, the scandal that I discovered then was the puberty blockers. I couldn't believe it. I started reading all the medical literature. 
I had heard about the puberty blockers before, but only in a positive way. People had said how brilliant they were and how much they were helping. But then I started to look into it. I don't even know why now. And I started to read about how little evidence they had and what they were doing. And I couldn't understand why they were doing it. And I couldn't stop digging, really. Just kept reading and reading. And then I met a detransitioner in a group on Facebook. And I started speaking to her because people were piling on her and saying that she was transphobic and was an awful person for mentioning her experience. So I messaged her and I said, was she all right? And she said, yes. And then we just got chatting. And then I was even more cross, really. <laughs> so had to get involved. So while you were bedbound, what was going on? In um, you, where did you go? I mean, mentally, did you build some sort of far off land or did you do reading? Yes, or? I did. I did build a far off land. I couldn't read and I couldn't write because okay. I didn't have the ability and I couldn't speak. And I couldn't have anyone to sit with me and talk to me. You couldn't so, handle the stimulation of a presence? No. Is that what you're saying? I couldn't okay. have someone in the room with me. So I would invent stories in my head and poems, very bad poems, wow. poems that rhyme terribly. <laughs> But I would invent stories and I had a whole planet in my head hmm. that I would go to. And it was mainly very silly. Like the king turned up at his own coronation in his um, fluffy slippers mm -hmm. and the butler was dead, um, but still very much doing his job. Just stuff like that, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it kept me going, really. I still go there as a, a world to go to, you know, I still check in, see how everyone's doing. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. I'd like to write it one day. I think you should. But now you have another community in your head that feels like it's outside of your head, but it really is just in your head, and I'm talking about Twitter and uh, the internet. I I had this idea the other day, actually, that everyone on Twitter is imagining that they're in the same place with all these wonderful people, but we right. actually only see it through our own... Well, okay, and some people who are not so wonderful, <laughs> but we only see it from our own perspective. It's very, it's not a good thing for humans to only see the world from just their one position, is it? Um, well, it takes a lot of, um, it takes a certain sort of ability or proclivity or practice to think in more than one position. Yes, but I, the fact that you can turn people off if you mm. don't like them or you're annoyed at them or you don't agree with them, is not a good thing. Yeah, um, I think about that. I mean, uh, I, I, I'm in a different position than normies just because I have a production company, I guess you could call it, and I'm there for people to look at and think about and construct and a version of me in their head assembled out of all these different audio video things and, and the text mm. that I put out there. So I, I have a more substantial claim to uh, being a focal point on that. And when I interact with people, uh, I've figured out a way to interact where I don't have to deal with people that I don't want to deal with. But they do attach their attitudes to my content sometime and it's hard for me to, you know, figure out, do I ignore them or do I tell them to leave because they're putting their thoughts onto my work? And I think I have the freedom to disassociate myself from them. But yeah, I try not to just squash them like little bugs, you know, 
block. I think it's very hard when people say stuff on the internet not to have reactions to it. I mean, I've sometimes put my attitude on your content, so you know. <laughs> you have a fair, you have a fairly balanced attitude. Well, I try, I try and be fair to people, but I don't yeah. always like stuff to say. Yeah, no, no. Why would you like stuff that I say? I couldn't possibly say, Benjamin. <laughs> Speaking of stuff to say, you, I think we're supposed to talk about stuff that is said, language, <laughs> communication. Are we on actually that. recording? Just to check. <laughs> I suddenly realized about three, four minutes into this, I think he might be recording, but I just I check. <laughs> I think I say at the start of every, I think like every fifth interview has somebody saying, are we recording? I'm like, yeah, why do you think we're talking? <laughs> well, you know, you just enjoy my company. No, I do. I do. I just, um, I, I, it, it heightens me uh, to perform uh, in front of a more than just the crowd in my head. But yeah. Sorry. What was the question? Language. Yes, language. What about language? Yeah, what about it? Is it always... Well, uh, I think it's fundamental to this, isn't it? The language that people are using. Whether they're talking about trans women or men, and whether they're talking about cis or trans, and all these things, all these constructions that we have, completely frame the conversation differently for each person. Mm-hmm. Or each group of people. And I think it's a lot of why we don't find common ground with people. Because if you really do believe that trans women are women rather than either men or trans women, then you have to think that people are outrageous for having any boundary that excludes them. Yeah, the trans women are women is one formulation. I'm mostly concerned right now with the concept of the trans child or trans kids. Yes, a, the trans child is a terrible concept. Decimating articulation. Of well, it presumes a conclusion, doesn't it? If there is a trans child, then obviously you would have to medicalize them because they're a trans child. So it sets everyone up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, creates the, it creates the whole game. Creates the whole yes, game with that one thing. I read a book recently called Histories of the Transgender Child by Julian Jill Peterson, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was all about... It wasn't actually a history of the transgender child at all. It was mainly a history of what has been done to intersex people over time. But somehow that was relevant to the author. And... I think his pronouns are he, but I'm going to say he either way. Um, he laid out the idea that the whole of gender medicine was started with eugenics and the mistreatment of intersex children and intersex people back in the day in the sort of early 1900s. So that was quite interesting because the end of this book where you documented all the horrors of what was being done to intersex people and the cruelties, he nonetheless argued for more of these surgeries and treatments for young people. And there wasn't a clear path of how you get from one argument to the other. Hmm. 
was it was it that conception of the trans child that was just carrying the water i think so yes it was very short on the trans child though but there was no real demonstration that such a person exists except that some young people back in the day had dysphoria which is a different claim mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's I... a very interesting book sorry well uh, thinking back on your convalescence mm. i can imagine that you were tempted or you developed coping mechanisms that are not dissimilar from dysphoria being confronted with a physical embodiment that was not amenable to uh, happiness and activity and joy. So I'm, I and I bring that up, you might have some sort of insight into. I don't think you would. ever recognize yourself as a sick person. I don't recognize myself as a sick person now. It's been 21 years that I've been ill. Do not recognize myself as a sick person. I'm just a person who is temporarily unwell, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's very hard. Even though your body is you, you feel like you're separate to it. I think when you when your body doesn't work and maybe when your mind doesn't work or hmm. everything is stressful, you don't feel the same as your body. You feel more than your body. It's, I think that's quite a normal experience for people, especially people in extremis. Hmm. Extremis how? Well, Super just pains. extreme situation, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what what is your what is your goal in this in scale? life or in this specifically? In this specifically. What are you trying to understand, develop, change, do? promote what i want most is for children to be safe i want doctors to stop playing god which is how i think they are behaving yeah. um i want better care for dysphoric people i'd also like to see trans care in general in the uk better because the waiting lists are really bad and the mental health care is non-existent and i was talking to lucian the other day who's a trans man on twitter and he was saying that the surgeons don't really inform patients of all that's going on and all the complications that might arise. So that sort of stuff I'd like to help fix. But I'd also just like women to be safe, women and girls. I, I think about the women in prisons every day. I mm. can't bear that. So I'd like to help solve that. How do you think that's going to be solved? I think more people need to be in this conversation. If the, if the vast majority of people were in this conversation, I just don't think it would fly that male sex offenders were being put in women's prisons. I don't think most normal people are okay with that. And then, well, that's a matter of communication again. How do you open the conversation? How do you get that more eyes on it, more voices and act, interacting with it? I don't know, to be honest. I think we are getting more voices involved and more people interacting. But it seems to be just a collective not shutting up about it and continuing to say, you have to come and look at this. It's sort of grown exponentially because we haven't stopped. I don't think people really grasp what's happening. I get quite, when I talk to people about it, 
elsewhere. They believe you in the moment, but I don't think they really take it on board. Because it sounds made up, really, I think. What does? The idea that they would put male sex offenders in female prisons. It sounds made up. Why would anyone do that? Because of the language. Yes, because trans women are women, so you have to put them in there. Hmm. People have bought this idea. But it's also, I don't know that that idea could exist without the internet. Because it's... <sighs> sex is such an easy thing to pick out in most cases that you would look at a male sex offender in a female prison ordinarily in the real world and think, no, this is not correct, this is not right. But on the internet, where we are all in this sort of little bubble of our own creating, you can believe stuff. It is a fantasy land. It's a world that we've constructed in our collective heads. I don't think it's made us happier. It's made us more in touch. Well, I don't know. I mean, how do you how do you measure happiness? <laughs> I guess you measure uh, the opposite of happiness, and that's going up. But it could be because people are because again, language affects psychology. Language affects the entire, uh, not just language, but language itself shapes psychosomatics and symptoms where you have these different ailments are classified differently uh, according to different conceptions and then certain conceptions just travel around the world this entire conception of gender and then putting that somehow loosely over a broad range of psychological phenomena and that is so attractive to so many people and the groundwork of that language is kind of embedded deep for the last i don't know 60 70 years we've been talking about gender we've been talking about this so it's kind of there and then this thing kind of sprang up and traveled around yes it did almost everything you can say about gender you can say without using the word gender oh this is a fun game like what <laughs> Well, okay, now I have to be able to, to do this, but you can say people don't conform to society's expectations. You don't have to mention the word gender. It's always like an extra step, I think. It makes it more concrete while still remaining nebulous. Well... Gender is something we've all invested in, but we've all invested in from different directions. Feminism has invested in one idea of it. Yeah. Queer theory has a whole different one. Queer theory. But you can say everything you want to say as a feminist or presumably as a queer theorist, perhaps not as a queer theorist, actually, but you can say everything you want to say about like sex-based violence without using the word gender. So it's a sort of, it feels like a stepping stone concept to me. Hmm. Stepping to where well apparently to complete chaos but <laughs> hmm. well i have a authorial relationship to gender i have a literary relationship to gender it's indispensable for me uh, but because i articulate what because of language because of story you can't have a functioning epic or any sort of grand narrative without 
conception of how human beings propagate and in order for that to happen you have to have male and female in order for them to get along or not get along which is all the drama which keeps it interesting you have to have a notion of gender tendencies but again that doesn't necessarily have to be gender because you could say that the notion of male and female is sex so not gender and yeah, well, mm. you know so well yeah okay yeah but when you relegate it to sex and when you only think in terms of sex stereotypes, you don't really, it's too rigid. It's too rigid of, an, of a form. You don't assemble a character or well-rounded character, at least out of stereotypes. You can assemble a good allegory or a fairy tale out of uh, stereotypes, but you're trying to get the stereotype into an archetypal lens, but you still need a sense a feeling. That's not just this gamete uh, you know, these two different ways of producing gametes. Like, I can't reduce story into sperm, spermazoa and ova, ovum. Like, that that doesn't... Disappointing as that is. Um, <laughs> is gender not stereotypes? Essentially. Like, what part of gender really isn't stereotypes? Doesn't it almost rely on them? Because it's broad brushstrokes about whole groups. It's, um, well, one, we would have to examine whether or not stereotypes are in and of themselves wrong or bad. Um, They're a set of tentative heuristic expectations that are, that when held too lightly will guide you through most situations. Like, they can be very useful shorthands, but they can be very useful shorthands. Yeah. Can't they? But even so, is gender not stereotypes? And is it not? stereotypes to an extreme it depends on it depends on the person that deploys them it depends on the author that deploys them either you have a nuanced sense of gender or you have a very crude sense of gender Uh, you can use stereotypes crudely or with nuance the stereotype itself is useful no matter what but how you deploy it see that's why i don't think you should just destroy the stereotypes because you're going to have to recreate them. If, if we destroy gender tonight by 12 PM tomorrow, we would have to reinvent it because of all the human interaction that we go through, especially in, in, in uh, multiple human interactions, we would have to start rely on there's patterns of behavior that women kind of generally have and patterns of behavior that men generally kind of have, especially in group, those pattern groups, those patterns start to become more and more definite, more and more separate. And then you get then then you build a sense of propriety of how I should comport myself, generally speaking, towards females and generally speaking towards males, what provides the most access to what I want from those two groups, which for me is good conversation. So it's like a guide rail, but it's not reality, right? No, because people are individuals. Yeah. I'm but interested sex profoundly. In I'm sorry, what? So what? What sort of gender stuff do you put in your stories? Like, what would be a good template for how you use gender in your stories? Well, it depends on what which part of the story we're talking about. If we're talking about the beginning of time, hmm. then we have Adam and Eve and their sons and daughters, and they're possessing a certain sort of archetypal level of gender where female represents something very broadly uh, feminine 
And then you have uh, like a dark and a light side to that. And you can start to break those things up into different things. And masculine has certain general primary uh, kind of possibilities and uh, forces or energies, basically. And then you kind of follow that. When you're mapping out a myth, you, you use one set of gender sense. But when you're talking about a novel, something that happens in the day to day, and you start to use the word she to tell your story, you're going to have a different kind of sense of the world than if you start with the just the basic he. If you start with a he or you start with a she, you're going to have a different kind of adventure in the modern world, I, I think. And that's really evident in, in stories or movies. It's, or it's evident in stories, perhaps not because I mean, I agree men and women are different in lots of ways, but perhaps mm -hmm. it's more evident in stories because of the storytellers than because you have to have different stories about men and women. Maybe, but it's not just the storytellers. It's also the audience participation and what the audience finds believable and what really touches the audience. And the feelings that, that the character engages with in the, in the individual readers. Well, say the damsel in distress trope. You could subvert that and have the man being rescued. Yeah. If an audience didn't find that believable, that wouldn't be because women can't rescue men or that even necessarily men are more likely to rescue women. It would be because it's something we've all absorbed culturally. And there might so, be reasons why, in the past, women had no social ability to rescue men. Inquiring along that level would open up a can of worms with regards to evolutionary uh, biology, and then uh, you'd have to question whether or not myth actually is something embedded in our brains, like some sort of deep circuitry. But if you generally see, I mean, this is, this is the problem. So you start to talk stereotypes and a certain sort of reader react overreacts to stereotypes because they don't they think that it's all bad so they don't even want to play around with this stuff but if you think of women as you know large gamete uh takes a lot of resources <laughs> uh nine months pregnant the child itself needs a lot of years of care uh, that slows down the woman just physically in order for human beings to exist you have to have some sort of patience from the mother or I guess the mother births it and then gives it over to a dad and the, the male would have to perform that. But for whatever reason you see, uh, to pull up that Swedish thing where Swedish government said, we're going to have equal, uh, everything's equal. And it turned out that men started to like working with objects and women's tended to work with people. You see those, those basic kind of distinctions going on. And then you can start to, see that it's probably more believable that a woman will be more adept at caring or uh, looking at the world through a certain set of lens. Whereas you, you probably, it's going to be more believable if you see this completely cold, rational, uh, detached, individualistic person, uh, kind of like as this kind of male trope, right? This self-isolated atom. Uh, and that, that's kind of represented in our nature, nature. And it's represented in the animals that are close to us. And a lot of animals, like the male, is just kind of alone a lot. And the female is the one that is close. Thinking of the deer that walk by, by my window. 
I saw the little video of the baby deer. That was very cute. Yeah. But again, but again, I understand the gender critical feminist critique of stereotypes and the wanting to unmoor expectations from any given person. Uh, but that's just a basic rule of thumb. If you want to approach the world with nuance, you want to use those things lightly. You don't want to just decimate them. Even, even being critical of gender, you have, there's a coarse way to do that. And then there's a nuanced way to do that. Right. So it's always about the capacity of the person to recognize the complexity of the subject, not necessarily the way that they're recognizing it. A lot of the stereotypes about women seem not very good. You know, a lot of them, even the words we use about women. Like what? You know, soft, nurturing. It's all very fluffy, isn't it? And there's nothing wrong. Wait, you think nurturing is negative? I don't think it's negative to be nurturing. I do think it's negative to presume half of the human race has a monopoly on nurturing and to kind of not give them any other descriptive words that are a lot of it. It's just all very fluffy. And in my experience, women aren't fluffy. Women are all sorts of things and they are very nurturing, but I don't know. It sort of relegates women to a certain sphere all the time. Well, see, so that, again, when we're describing male and female and general tendencies of the individual and general tendencies, especially of the group, you can really see that a group of women acts in a certain way that's distinct from a group of men. And I can I can say that as somebody who interacts with groups of women, right? I agree They have a certain, a certain pattern. And so you have to actually understand how... Sorry, sorry, what? There are definitely patterns. Of yeah. behavior, whether you think they're more socialized or innate, I don't think it necessarily matters. But nonetheless, the language we use to talk about women when we set up these sorts of stereotypes is all very fluffy. Like you don't, like courage, for example, people think of as like a male thing or like bravery, and that's not really right. Okay, so again, it's a matter of interp- for me, it's a matter of interpretation. If we're talking archetypally, then those things make sense in a very archetypal uh, way, which is you can think of archetypes as cartoons. It's very cartoonish. It's very very basic, and so you're gonna have a Why? basic sense of this kind of pattern, that kind of pattern, and then you're gonna attach. Well, kind of... Sorry, <laughs> sorry. Finish your thought, and I will. No, no, go on. But why would courage be archetypally male? Why would things like strength? I mean, women push babies out of themselves. Yeah. They bleed every month. They do things that are really strong. So and that's it, not included in the word nurturing and caring? <sighs> nurturing is a very fey way of dealing with like mm. the, the visceral experiences of a female body. And yeah. I don't know. It's all... It's all very gentle language. It's all very cozy, isn't it? You don't think women are cozy and gentle? <laughs> I'm I not think saying they are. that. If you know how to treat them right, they become that way. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. If you're gentle and cozy with them, they get gentle and cozy with you, generally speaking. Yeah, nourishment based on Latin, nutri, feed, cherish. 
So, I, I mean, I, I understand the basic interpretive lens that sees that the set of feminine attributes on an archetypal level are seen as weak or passive. Um, I find them that to be a, a one-sided reading where you're not actually seeing the power um, of those stereotypically female traits. You're not really respecting them if you're only seeing them as weakness. And also you're blinding yourself to the ways in which women can, in a certain pattern, exert their strength um, by thinking uh, more long-term than men, by being, uh, here's a bad word, by being more cunning and by evaluating, well, I'm going to manage things over time rather than the man being stereotypically more immediate. And Do you mean and more organized, maybe? Females? Yeah, by cunning, what do you mean? Like more I organized, mean, more forward thinking, more... Uh, more more uh, able to manage people by them not knowing that they're being managed. Um, I know somebody who's a manager of a restaurant, and she is a female, and she learned that the best way to manage this restaurant is to get people to do things without them knowing that they're not, that it's coming from her. Like, to... to to kind of plant the seeds and think over time and then kind of train people from a, from a distance. So especially with her male employees who always wanted to be the center of attention, um, who, who were kind of egotistical, she would uh, not go directly against their ego because that would form a clash, but kind of manage their ego by being bigger than that and then playing with that over time so that the ego would manage and then sync up with what she wanted out of the entire organization, which is a functional organization. Does that make sense? It does. It sounds exhausting. Oh, it sounds easier to just tell people what you think, you know? And huh. I think a, in my experience, the right kind of man can cope with that. So having to go around the houses... <laughs> Okay. Well, how how what percentage of men are the right kind of men? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I can't even answer that. Right. Um, I don't know. We have I to mean, have a tool set. I, so, there are some very very good men, but there are a lot of men who do not like it when women say things that rub them the wrong way. Well, they probably so don't, don't like that with men either. They probably just that's deal probably with true. That differently. Yeah. yeah. Assholes are assholes, uh, probably pretty much to everyone. Um, but uh, so uh, with regards to gender stereotypes, um, literally, and then interpreting phenomena, I think it's a misstep for, generally speaking, uh, gender critical slash second wave feminists or whichever brand of feminists decided to deal with stereotypes to only interpret the female esque stereotypes in the negative light as fluffy as soft seeing nurturing as only uh like subservient um subservient to what and what strength is un hid underneath that I, I i profoundly respect all of these archetypes so i see the darkness and the lightness in them and by lightness i mean fluffiness but also like the concreteness of all those things so i think it's a, an interpretive lens that's trying to liberate women that can go too far by having women only see their tendencies as weak generally speaking and that's where you get reactionary feminism claiming no being being a mother is strong being nurturing is actually essential to the entire human race it is but it's not a female only trait no nobody's saying that no but there's something about gender stereotypes that relegates women to traits and 
women don't have access to the sort of the other traits they're not described in the other ways they're not viewed in the other ways they're not I think it's beginning to change like a lot of the books I read now women are doing all sorts Fiction. of exciting yes but and women in real life do as well but you're seeing it represented which will yeah. again create different ideas culturally and perhaps yeah. different stereotypes but I think if you take something that women are assumed to be nurturing I suppose and you say that men are nurturing it's just as true for good men as it is for good women you know so it's a sort of there's value judgments there yeah and i think you have to ask why like why is that value specifically supposed to be a women's value whose need does it serve and why are those ideas chosen because women are incredibly courageous i actually very very controversial opinion but i actually think women tend to be more courageous than men in my experience especially socially courageous women will say things socially that men will perhaps not or men will struggle to say they will women will stand up for things i think at least in my experience when things have gone very wrong in social situations women mm. have been the try to fix it and try to speak out against something bad mm -hmm. i think women have a vast amount of courage yeah yeah and, but it's not uh, recognized oh i think it is recognized i think uh, i think everybody kind of has a speaking archetypally okay the church lady is somebody who uh, manages discourse and uses the tools of uh ridicule and shame and correcting people in order to keep the society the church in order according to a certain propriety uh, there there's i'm sure there's archetypal british females that are kind of known to police discourse in a certain way and say what's proper and improper i think uh, i think that that is an archetype that shows that women do guide social discourse and always have Courage, though, like ridicule and shame doesn't sound like courage to me, and neither does proper and improper. That just sounds like etiquette. Like, women being good at etiquette is not the take. Um, I Courage, I mean... Well, you, well, etiquette is... You, you said that women are speaking out when something is wrong. That's, again, that's that's ad etiquette. Like, etiquette is yes, just on, yes, on a right. very light level, but I'm saying, like, the entire thing, how we behave, isn't just table manners. It's the entire structure of everything. And I think women have a particular ability, and, and that's spoken of archetypally, um, when we think of the church lady, to regulate how people behave. That wasn't really what I meant. The wrong is perhaps a British understatement. I'm thinking in situations where really bad things have happened to people. Women have been the people I've seen speak out. Like I was in a social circle where a man was coercing younger women into sexual situations. And he was doing that because they were quite poor and he would pay their bills and stuff. And then he would demand stuff from them. It was really abhorrent. And the men were not willing to do anything about that. But the women were. One man did. He sort of joined the women and did something about it. But women, in my experience, speak out against things like that. And I, it's like the nurses with Jimmy Savile. I don't know if you know about Jimmy Savile. No, I don't he know. He was a terrible paedophile in England. And he was quite famous. And he used to go to hospitals and children's wards. And it was the nurses who would keep him out. The rest of the hospital staff 
all the people in power and charge did very little, but the nurses would tell the children to pretend to be asleep and they would keep him out. I think women are like that. I think women are like tigers when it yeah. comes to protecting others. And that is courage. But I don't yeah. think that's something that is recognised in the same way. Like male courage is sort of like the default kind of courage. You know, slaying the dragon and... Yeah, I mean, again, like archetypally, but you can totally see like uh, here. This might be interpreted negatively. I don't mean it negatively. It's just an example. But like the the mother bear is a very realistic understanding that we know in our culture. Like the that the the woman will suddenly gain tremendous amounts of destructive power when it's in the service of protecting other people, uh, or you know, courage uh, in the service of protecting other people, which is again a part of nurturing like that goes to the the nur nurturing archetype of uh i don't think you can just file it all on nurturing you know well i'm just saying it's all related <laughs> in, a, in a network of associations you've gone very quiet protecting directness yeah well so the representation of uh, individual females as possessing certain traits that, or let's just say a collection of words that have been represented as masculine words, let's say courage, but rationality is a th uh, another thing, uh, rationality, um, etc. I mean, you could, you could do all those things and still have an understanding that that's no less, those women are being no less female for acting in that way, right? So yeah. in so far as the stereotypes that we've inherited, I, I don't know from where, let's just say like chivalrous times, like those conceptions uh, restrained women more than men. And so to deconstruct those stereotypes, releases women to have more freedom or be less burdened by these negative soft stereotypes that keep them uh, not taken seriously, I guess, maybe by men. Is that the point of deconstructing uh, sex stereotypes? I think that's part of the point. And I also think that valuing women who do not conform to those kinds of stereotypes is very important because mm -hmm. there's a kind of social pressure on women to be kind and nice and soft and all these things and we see it in this debate women who have stepped out of line and said no no stop it are absolutely vilified we're deluged with abuse well other women sometimes um but also male people whether they're trans women or men some of the men in this discussion oh, they really enjoy and having to go at women you know mm-hmm mm -hmm. They just, yeah. it's, it's, it feels like a jamboree, I think, to them. Yeah. It's really, this particular discussion really uh, uh, brings out a lot of misogyny. From yes, it does. But it must have been in there, which is interesting to see, because I didn't really understand there was that much left. I thought we'd kind of gone beyond that. Yeah, I think, um, oh, God. I don't know how people are going to respond to me. I know how the feminists will. <laughs> but because uh, there's a tendency for feminists to read me in the most negative light possible, um, which is just my experience. I don't know why that is. Um, but uh, I think that there's a, a reason why men, uh, certain men have such 
intense misogyny and it has to do with something inside of them that isn't at peace or that that's weak it's a it's a weakness uh and and they uh externalize that by hating women or hating on women i think it is a weakness that That is i think that's right but how do you fix that weakness well how do you fix that how do you fix weak men yeah how do you fix weak men well, um, I think that there's a range of tools that are effective. One is to mock them. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> um, and, and to just uh, put, put it in their face just how weak they're being. Um, how, uh, I, and maybe even call upon a certain sort of male standard. Maybe holding them up to a male standard and seeing how, fall they, how far they're falling short of that. Right, actually lean into a stereotype of, of, of men as, as being protectors of, of women and respectful of women uh, and, and showing, showing that they're actually misogynist and, and weak and, and are, there's something wrong with them, right? Calling them to account and, and calling them maybe leaning into their manhood uh, to do that. Weaponizing the stereotype to call them to a better standard. Well, my mum is an ardent believer that even though men still groped women and did all sorts of awful things to them in public in the 60s and 70s, chivalry and gentlemanly behaviour did stop a lot of what we're now seeing. She, she feels that. She thinks we should bring that part back. What do you think about that? I grew up with men who called themselves and behaved as gentlemen because they were of a generation. My dad was about 54 or 5 when he had me. So he was very much of his time. And my grandfather was even older. And in my grandfather particularly, he had a lot less stereotypes around women or ideas that they were lesser because his mother was a professor in a time when women really weren't. And he was so proud of her. He was absolutely convinced I could be queen or prime minister if I wanted to be (laughs) when I was a kid. So I think you can actually combine being a gentleman with not expecting women to fit a more subservient role. So you can have some sort of standards for men that you wouldn't have to call it gentlemanly behavior, but it would be something in that vein, I suppose, where, Hmm. you know. They protect people who are physically weaker than them without patronizing them. And they don't do some of the things that we are now seeing prevalently online, like threaten women and show us pictures of their penises unsolicited and all those things. Hmm. Yeah, one wonders to what extent um, the Internet has revealed this behavior or uh, facilitated it more just speaking specifically about men's treatment of females is there more misogyny or is it just more apparent right and is there less gentlemanliness or is it just easier to uh, ignore because the misogyny is is much more attractive just to our attention uh, for novelty and and danger and threat we evaluate threat versus uh, comfort differently I think the ubiquitousness or ubiquity, can't remember which word, um, of online pornography is a massive deal. I think it has influenced the treatment of women quite significantly. 
it reinforces this idea of sort of women being constantly sexually available to men and men having a sexual entitlement to women and they take that away from pornography onto the nearest women online that they discover well that's true also there's a decrease in actual sex right yes which is entire not generation so it's all virtual sorry what it's not ideal it's unhealthy for everyone yeah there's ever more boundaries between people's bodies while the virtual um the virtualization of the body especially as a sexual thing just kind of goes completely off the wall just into infinitudes of perversion and creativity probably beauty as well um the whole gamut of that part of us is no longer situated in, in the body it's using the body to situate our attention uh, in this imagined world in our heads and then the the fallout of that is that you have uh males um sexualizing themselves as females um pornographically and then also the reduction of females into vehicles of pleasure for males and then nothing beyond that but i think that that's still a lower form of discourse and that people that get stuck there need to somehow get out of that rather than it being par for the course i think that you can exist in this space um fruitfully uh, by not being that way and how do you how do you get more people to not be that way i think is there's two ways to do that there's the carrot and the stick and the carrot would be modeling the gentlemanly behavior or whatever associated uh attitudes and attributes you would want from men and you can kind of construct this archetypal figure of of maleness that you would like and then you find males that model that and then you you speak of that as the ideal right so again you use stereotypes to get males to act like you want men to be acting and not how you see men acting right so gender could be a tool to affect change in men you could also do the same thing with just a sort of standards for all humans. You could, um, but you could, but that loses the specificity of basic male pattern behavior and female pattern behavior. Men are going to respond to different things than women typically are, typically are. So if, if you want to just purge the whole world of gender or purge like a morality of gender, you can do that, but you're still going to want to uh, fine-tune it for different demographics. And now a word from our sponsor. I think there will probably always be some behavioral differences between men and women because we have different biology. And I think moving through the world with different bodies is a different experience. But there's so much white noise on top of that that we have created. Hmm. What do you mean white noise on top of that that we've created? Well, like you talk about myths and archetypes and all of these things. We've, you know, we've made these up over time. Some of them because we've seen patterns. But the thing about seeing patterns is that once you have a word for a pattern or an idea for a pattern, you see it everywhere. It's like when you learn a new word and you've uh. never heard it before and then suddenly everyone's saying it, you know? It's suddenly out in the world. But that doesn't make the word less useful 
later on down the road, once it becomes part of your lexicon, once the pattern becomes accepted and the lexicon is just one thing, then you know when to apply it and when not to apply it. So again, it's about literacy. It's not about the, it's not about the lexicon. It's about the literacy. It's not about the stereotypes and the patterns that we see in the world. It's about how we can articulate those and match them up to the current circumstance and, and also know when we're being wrong and, and adjust our behavior accordingly. Yes. But it's also about what patterns we see and why I think, I don't know how many billions of pieces of information we take in at one moment, but I think it's something like 3 billion. And so then we just filter it and we filter it through all sorts of things. So lots of stuff missing there, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. what we choose to filter and why has massive impact. Mm-hmm. And stereotypes set us up to filter it in certain ways, which is not always bad, but they do set us up to filter it in certain ways. And then they reconfirm what we already believed. Um, especially if they turn out to be more true than false. And then they reify themselves over time. Yes. I, I think that there's a, a huge area of uh, exploration uh, via evolutionary biology to um, explain certain sexed stereotypes and why they hold true. Um, and if you understand the conditions in which we as creatures were molded, you can see why certain uh, behaviors are manifested uh, more on one sex than another sex. Without saying that men and women are two different things, you can say that men and women are very, very similar, but there's a tendency for women to be more on this side and a tendency for men to have these attributes, right? And you, again, it's about literacy to understand that not any given woman or any given man is going to be these things, but in aggregate, there's these tendencies that do have to do with our biology and the reality of where we came from. And I think that understanding that is a great tool or an arena to breathe life into the stereotypes and also to put them in their place. I think it's important to put them in their place. Exactly. So I agree with that aspect. Exactly. Yeah. Like a, like a little uh, cabinet is what do, what do British people call cabinets? I believe we call them cabinets. A hutch? No, no, you put rabbits in hutches. You put china in cabinets. Okay. Really? <laughs> yes. Very much. Yes. If you ask to see someone's hutch, they're gonna take you outside and show you a rabbit. Oh, you guys the- just have rabbits in little weird apartment condos? They ha- yeah, they have like little um barbed wire type stuff, but not really barbed wire. Chicken wire I think it's good. You know, and you can see the rabbit and it's little wood. Yeah, little rabbit hutch. Thank you. I, I learned something new about people. <laughs> you didn't people. know this. <laughs> no, I did not know that. I know what a lorry is, but I've never been in one. Do you have lorries in America that back up and then say things like, this lorry is reversing? <laughs> we have that here. This lorry is reversing. <laughs> um, no, we just have uh, large vehicles that go beep, beep, beep. We have oh, you're supposed t- to interpret that. But not as large as your vehicles, I don't think. No, no. Or everything's bigger in America. Yeah, so I hear. We got more space to fill up. You guys can drive the length of your tiny little island, turf island, as they call it, um, in like what eight hours, ten hours, twelve hours from the north to the south. 
six hours from like Guildford to Scotland or something. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. But the consequence of that is we don't. The consequence of that is if someone lives three hours away, you're like, oh, it's a long way. <laughs> yeah, I might see you next year. <laughs> In a yeah. lot of cases. I'm like four hours from Vancouver. There's a whole bunch of uh, very fine people up there that we mutually yes. know, I'm pretty sure. GNC-centric and arty. Are, I think those those guys are in Toronto. I was thinking yes, more like right. Amy Ham right. and Megan Murphy. Um, they're in, they're more the VC uh, British Columbia uh, crew. <laughs> so language. Do words yeah. have an inherent value, and to what extent can we interpret them differently, depending on the well, context? Well, words only have an inherent value because we give them an inherent value so they're imbued with value yes you could call a table anything it's still be a table okay but when we're talking about concepts when we conceptualize that and start to um, use language in in different patterns such as rhyming then there's that poetic license for the table to not just mean a table. To, the table takes yes. on more meaning symbolically or metaphorically. But it can only take on that meaning if you really understand what a table is to start with. Yeah. 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 That's probably where we're all going wrong in this discussion. Well, not the turban, but people are going wrong in this discussion is that we have now lost the solid concept of man and woman and we're just all bibbling about all over the place. I think that well I see okay maybe maybe I'm wrong this is my idea but I think that reinstating gender norms and stereotypes is the way to go and to reify the positivity of male and female stereotypes and to call people to uh to uh you know to make them something that we achieve or, or strive for uh, especially for males i think uh, i think if we we reinvent uh, and reify the concept of a good man and put that out in the society um, you might do much to relegate the negative behavior of men and reintroduce shame uh, into men's behavior so that they understand that that shame is something that they need to pay attention to and change their behavior because it's not a good thing to act shamefully I think that that can act for all humans, but I think men specifically from the point of view of, of Turvin uh, is how do you guys fix them? How do you change them? The only problem from doing that from the perspective of gender stereotypes is that I think having gender stereotypes in the past has very much led to this new form of gender ideology because there was already a gender ideology, right? And like the right wing has a gender ideology. It's just a different one. Well, um, the right wing's gender ideology is specifically Judeo-Christian-wise, and just a footnote, Judeo-Christian-wise, like that, their entire gender stereotypes come down into a complete worldview, whereas the gender ideology that we're dealing with now doesn't have a mythology. It's just complete self-identification and just a radical alchemical mixture of insanity, whereas the conservative, it's all built on top of very ancient and tried and true uh, patterns that actually promote uh, human beings through time. I think it promoted men through time. I'm not sure it promoted women. 
Well, it depends on if you, well, see, and this is the thing I would, I would challenge, uh, I would, I, I think that the, the Nashant rea- reactionary feminist movement might have a different conception of what it is to be female that doesn't see uh, the patriarchy as one-sided, but actually facilitating uh, the matriarchy throughout time. It's just the patriarchy is like the Audi, more apparent. The but when just been in time have we ever had a matriarchy, really? I think all the time. Sort of- For all time. You are so going to have to explain this more. I know. I get in trouble with this one because it's, it's not evident. Uh, it's, it's not the outside. It's the inside. Well, if it's the, not evident and it's not the outside, then how is it really a matriarchy? Like if, it, if we're just in our homes being all matriarchal with our very small amount of social power back in the day, how is that, how is that a matriarchy? Well, okay, you'd, you'd have to think in terms of scale. You'd have to think of terms of scale. And, and if you're thinking in terms of nas- scale of nations or the scale of, uh, well, I guess, bergs, what were they called? Like uh, duchies, I guess? I don't know. Mm. Uh, you Europeans have different levels of government over time. But if you're thinking of just the family unit, then there's tons of male and female influence on that family unit. If you're thinking of terms of more and more abstract structures, historically speaking, you're going to have less female involvement on those abstract structures. And so you're only going to see the male involvement up there. And I think that that leads to a discounting of just how much female influence there has been because it's invisible. It's not recorded. And now over the last 200 years, it's starting to be more and more recorded more and more recorded but even the very fact we don't record women's achievements and women's influence would suggest we didn't live in a matriarchy at any point because if you lived in a society that was both patriarchy and matriarchy somehow you would value both and therefore you would record both you know you wouldn't it wouldn't be invisible because it would be a valued part of a society well it depends on what you're recording it depends on on what historians found valuable and from a historical point of view they were just talking on a very abstract level between like wars and chieftains and all that crap but how much did that crap actually affect the mass of human beings uh, that were just living their lives as opposed to the amount of influence that females have have over the mass of human beings through time, just not recorded, right? Do, 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 do you see, just because the historians didn't write it down doesn't mean that it's not there and is not exerting its influence. It just means that it was not important to record. I think the, the fact of it not being important to record is very telling, though. I'm reading well, this book at this moment called, yeah. actually, I can't remember what it's called, but it's about Mary Davies, and she was hmm. a very rich lady in the 1600s. She owned pretty much all of London. But really? because she was female, her life was all parameters set by males. So she was already to be married off when she was, I think, 13. She did really love her husband over time, and they wrote very sweet love letters to each other. Hmm. But she couldn't sign all of her own documents. Yeah. And one of the things the book mentions is that women were taught to read, but they weren't taught to write because their job was to listen and they weren't really supposed to have their own perspective. Yeah, it's hard to look at that and and consider it a matriarchy. Well, you're you're also you're talking about the aristocracy, right? We're talking about a well, very specific class of people. 
Yes, that's true. But had those rules. I don't think it got better going lower down the social scale. You know, women perhaps did more manual labor in the working classes, but I don't think they had more social power necessarily. In the East End in the 1800s, they the women would work jobs and do all sorts of things like that, and they had to look after the family as well. But they were still at the mercy of their husbands who would come home drunk and beat them or one of what the things percentage like, like all of them not all of them but it was quite high it was surprisingly high um okay. i was reading a book about um the match women and they would hand their daughters not infrequently over the fences to other women because they were at risk when the husbands were drunk mm-hmm. so it's very hard to look back through history and read about women and think of them as a group of people who had social power. Because their social power was subjugated to men's physicality and men's jurisdiction over them. So mm-hmm. I don't I don't see how that's a matriarchy. There was a rule at one point that you couldn't beat your wife after 10 p.m. because people needed to sleep. Like, <laughs> you know... It, it doesn't sound matriarchal to me. It sounds mm-hmm. very one-sided. Mm-hmm. And how has that changed? Well, I think a lot has changed because women can vote, women can participate in public life, women can go after the careers they want, they can go to university, they get named for the things that they invent now more often. A lot has changed, but some things have remained there's still a lot of sexism about the place as we see daily and the expectations of women are still women still do the majority share of the housework apparently even though they work as well so women go out to a job come home to a second job of like picking up socks like things like that is still not equal So women have social power, but they don't have complete totalitarian control over men yet. And I don't think it's totalitarian <laughs> control over men to be like, oh, we both live in this house, let's do a 50-50 share of housework. That's not totalitarian, that's, that's yeah. fair dips. Well, you'd have to go relationship by relationship and then see how... I, I don't trust those statistics. Uh, you know, oh, like, don't you? What, what do you? What do you want to do? Like, well, okay, okay. I, I don't. I, I think that that is a. I think that there's probably more nuance in there than than the statistic that women uh, do more housework uh, than men. While true, there's probably some sort of what's it called negotiation that's happening in there. And if you want to change that, I guess you'd have to change the societal expectations on what housework is, and then you'd want to unpair that from being a feminine endeavor and then get that going on. But you also have to realize that maybe men's attention just doesn't land on their immediate periphery. Maybe they're lost in their freaking heads. Maybe. I mean, I'm just saying that there might be more than one interpretation of that data. I think that's a cop-out. I've heard this one before. I think that's a cop-out. Because women's attention doesn't think, oh, socks, I want to pick those up. Like, wanting a nice environment is a very basic thing. But, like, women aren't... There's something in that. The idea that, like, oh, well, women like it nice, so they're going to fix it. You know, men are in their heads. Women love to be in our heads. We love to be thinking of other things. Okay. And, like, ideas and practicalities. But 
if there are dirty socks everywhere, someone's yeah. got to pick them up. And, so, and who's going to be bo bothered by them more? Well, ideally both parties. <laughs> well, okay, but who is ultimately bothered by them more? <laughs> and then takes the initiative because they can't go on. I mean, we're talking stereotypes, right? And I can already hear, like, me being taken because we can't adventure into this stuff. Wrong. Or coarsely. I'm going to be reduced into this uh, mouthpiece of the alt-right or whatever. Baloney. I, I, so what do you want then, ultimately, from men? Equal partnership, really. I want... I don't want to have to nanny men, and I don't want them to have to nanny me. You know, like... Hmm. It's like the thing with the birthday cards. Have you noticed this? That most women do the birthday cards for the men in their lives. Like, that's a thing. Women have to organize so much. It's all this, like, little, like small things that women have yeah. to do not all women yeah. in all relationships but as a general trend when you talk to women about their lives they're doing a lot of organizing for men who are fully grown adults too and could organize their own stuff but somehow don't mm -hmm. and i think that's cultural it, it, expectations okay it's it, it's all cultural expectation it might not be because a woman uses that to express love for a man well, I mean, individuals exist, but when you look at something that repeats like a pattern over and over and over, mm, it tells you something. <laughs> is it a stereotype or is it a pattern? I don't know. <laughs> okay. Stereotypically, women are doing this and men aren't doing that. Um, I just, so you want equal, you, you want equality. But that overlooks maybe uh, divergent interests. And how would you, again, th this, this is the question that I have when we get into this territory. It's like, okay, well, do you want a centralized authority paying women for housework? Which means that you would have this huge bureaucracy that's sucking money out of men and giving it to women. That's what you would have. You would have this no, state I I invading that. that. But... I would have women's labor recognized, but then if you paid women to do housework, women would still be stuck doing housework. They would have no more free time. It would be a much better thing if men did their share of housework. You know, okay. paying women for housework compensates them, doesn't solve the problem. Which is what? I think the problem, well, I think it's a problem if you live in a household and you both go out to work and you come home and only one of you is doing all the work around the house. I think that's a problem. There might be people who are fine with it, but it's a very exhausting thing, housework. It's a, it's a drudgery, isn't it? No one ever woke up, well, very few people ever woke up in the morning and thought, oh, I'm going to do some tumble drying today. Mm -hmm. It's a very, it's lowering, it's time consuming. But. Yeah. But it gives yeah. you opportunity to listen to a podcast such as this. <laughs> it's indisputable, but doesn't doesn't really carry the day, I don't think. So, okay, so it's one thing for men to um, not mistreat women. That that's that's the first ask. The second ask is to do everything equally. Not everything equally, but. Because when you said about divergent interests, I wouldn't call housework a divergent interest, you know, 
or caring about whether the socks are on the floor. I don't think that's a divergent interest. I think that's more, you know, these tasks have got to be done to maintain our home Mm -hmm. because otherwise, you know, soon we will be hoarders living in chaos. Um, Mm -hmm. So therefore, you can do your share. I'll do my share. We don't have to do the same. Like, I don't have to pick up a sock and you have to pick up a sock. Maybe I will go mow the lawn and you will do the washing up. But we'll just do it together, you know? Mow the lawn together, like like some sort of like <laughs> love seat lawnmower. That should actually be a thing, yeah. <laughs> well, this is an interesting thought. Jordan Peterson is telling that, saying, "Clean your room, clean your room, clean your room, clean your room," and he's been vilified as anti-feminist when he's actually trying to get men to be worthy of female relationships. Why are they? Why are they vilifying him as anti-feminist? Uh, he, I, I, they, I think, cause I think he's a threat to the, uh, order that wants to turn everybody into babies, but, uh, you, you see him castigated as anti-feminist, uh, sometimes specifically he for telling men to clean their rooms. Well, that's his main message, but he questions the, I guess, liberal dogma that hasn't really thought through things such as okay so there's this one controversy he got in there's two controversies he got in because people didn't really listen to him or he didn't speak clearly or he was taken out of context probably all three one thing was about enforced monogamy that he thought that Mm -hmm. uh, which i just think is better said as reinforced monogamy which just is a societal expectations that one man one woman uh right uh and that actually helps most people rather than one man, many women and many men, few women, which is what happens if you don't have enforced monogamy, more women will gravitate towards a playboy. And then that that leaves all the, that just leaves a growing mass of discontented men, um, just because the way that the math works out and how women tend to marry uh, laterally or upward, whereas men will uh, marry laterally or downward. Uh, over time. So there's enforced monogamy, which was taken as him being, um, you know, misogynistic or patriarchal because that's a patriarchal form. Monogamy is like uh, something that oppresses women or whatever. And then there's, uh, there was, uh, there was another controversy, but I guess we can pause there. The thing with the monogamy is you can't really fix a situation where there are all these disgruntled men because you can't make women marry them. Well, you shouldn't make women marry them. So, if men are not chosen as mates by women mm-hmm. in the same way that if women aren't chosen as mates by men, there's not really much you can do. Well, within a polyamorous society or in a society where um, there's no expectation for marriage, where sex is just a commodity like anything else or like just a entertainment like anything else, what you eventually have, like tender, with tender, what you eventually have is that very few men get most of the female attention and that leaves a lot of men without that female attention which is not good for society because then you have a bunch of aggro men now i understand what you're saying about not forcing people to marry down but if you have a general expectation societal expectation of chastity uh, evenly distributed between males and females you would have less playboys taking up less women right so there, there would be more space for more men to have access to female attention, which is necessary for society and actually beneficial for society. 
I don't think hookup culture is very good for women because I think oh, I don't think it's good for anybody. I mean, it's probably not good for men either, but I don't think it's very good for women. But chat well because something like sixty four percent of women don't orgasm with their first experience with a man, and one night stands is like a whole set of first experiences with a man. So it's bad from like a physical pleasure angle, but also socially. While I'm sure women who are okay with it exist, my experience of women who have had lots of one-night stands is that it's been a very miserable experience for them. They've been disrespected and mistreated by the men. Things have maybe happened in the bedroom that they really don't like. It just hasn't been a nice experience. So I don't think it benefits women very much. A society that expects them to have lots of sex with men hmm. and then punishes them for it as well. But chastity... How are they punished? Well... Societally? Women who won't sleep with men are called frigid, and women who will sleep with men are called sluts. So you have like this yeah, double. That, I think that's women. a sixty. I think that's a fifties thing. I don't think that that's necessarily the case anymore. I think women's sexuality is very much promoted across all levels of society, and there's no shame attached to that. There's more shame to people who shame that behavior than there are people who are being shamed. I don't think that's true with individual interactions with lots of men. I think. Lots of men want women to be sexually available to them, but not sexually available in general. Mm. And I think they have lots to say if they meet women who don't fit that sort of criteria. But on the other hand, chastity is off the table because you can't expect anything from women. You can only expect things from men because any expectations of women's behavior would be misogyny. Well, hold on. I don't think that's true. I think you can expect things from women, but you can't expect them to marry men that they don't like because the men will get disgruntled if they don't and you can't sort of corral them into it by saying they can't sleep with anyone until they get married like that's a sort of manipulation isn't it to say well you can't well, this is all manipulate we're everything we're doing right now is trying to manipulate society to achieve a better result so manipulation itself but is it a better who is it a better result for if women cannot choose their mates Okay, I didn't say choices off the no, table. No. I said the diminishment but, of hooking up in order to evenly distribute male and female in her in her. The Lincoln. way you diminish hooking up, perhaps, is women realizing that it doesn't normally go well for them and that they don't like it. Yeah. And men being more respectful would probably mean that men who are perhaps not getting sexual attention from women would find that they would because. The bar is quite low for men's behaviour in dating quite a lot of the time because of how a lot, like, there's a pool of men out there behaving in very poor ways. So you really have to only turn up and be really decent and respectful and lovely. And you're going to find a lot of women in most cases are like, oh, he's nice. So <laughs> I don't think it would be that hard for men to get women to want to date them if they were really lovely to women. That might be the way to fix that problem. So, okay, this is again. Uh, Jesus Christ, I'm getting so much. Trouble. <laughs> so, if if women were more selective with uh, hooking up, with which means that they'd just be more chaste and not not allow men access to that, then men would have to raise their behavior in order to achieve or to prove their worthiness of that physical transaction, but also uh, understand that it's not just a physical transaction. It's actually a, some sort of partnership uh, over a 
more than a one-night stand. So there's more selectivity from women, so they're being more selective, and then men would have to rise to that occasion. Men would have to up their game, too. Women would have to kind of play harder to get. That would be so easy. In times where women were extremely chaste, I don't think men really did up their game. Really? Well, back in the day. um, Which day? The history day, you know, like the past. All right. The treatment of women was still very poor, even though women were not allowed to have sex before marriage. So it wasn't... I'm sure there were women who had wonderful husbands and wonderful romances, but a lot of the time it was kind of... It was very transactional marriage, and it wasn't about love so much. But it was... Mm -hmm. Men were also not treating women in an exemplary fashion. So being chaste doesn't seem to be necessarily... (sighs) Hmm. I I feel like men should want to treat women really well, and whether women are willing to sleep with them or not sleep with them is not the key there. Hmm. And men who want women who won't sleep with them too soon should not sleep with women who will sleep with them too soon because they don't want women who will sleep with them too soon. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about it, you're like, well, if I can get there by doing this, imagine what other people could do. Probably like, so then he shouldn't sleep with her because that's not what he's looking for. Well, if he's not looking for that, I mean, and again, it's a, selection like how do you how do you know that most men aren't being that way because you wouldn't just notice that you you don't notice people behaving correctly you don't notice people who are being good like people have, somebody has to be really really good uh to get the same amount of attention as somebody who's marginally bad just because of the way that we we process information so in in a modern context, like what is a good man? Like what is the man that you want out there? More replicas of, let's say. What like is, I what think are, several are, men that I know who we um, could do with cloning. Um, and, and what are the attributes of such men? They're very honorable. They don't do anything creepy. They don't. Oh. Wait, hold on. Like, honorable. That sounds like a male stereotype. <laughs> Non-creepy sounds like the opposite of a male stereotype. Okay. So it does work with too. But, yes, they're honorable. They're not creepy. When they have partners, they're not all weirdly sexual with you. So you don't think, hold on, what's going on? Um, Wait, what do you mean? Like, when they're with somebody else, they're not... Yes, they don't, like, come into your inbox or into your phone or in person and do things that feel like crossing a boundary when they have a person who they love. Yeah, okay. So Um, chased. Okay, chaste. Um, you want everything. <laughs> you want everything from men, but you don't want women to have to give them. <laughs> it's it's not that because I don't think hookup culture benefits women. So, so you would rather men that aren't part of that culture. Oh yes. Yeah. 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 Like. I don't see I don't see the value of it, but other people do. But I think hmm. the behaviours that I've just listed, like not being inappropriate when they have a partner, mm-hmm. I don't know whether women do that, but they're definitely not doing it to me. So <laughs> in most Wait, cases. What do you mean women aren't well, doing that? Well, I was saying that because you said that chaste, but 
women being inappropriate to men when they are in a relationship with another man, I don't think is the widespread phenomenon. It's not prevalent. Yeah. And women being creepy to men is not a widespread phenomenon. Well, what do you mean by creepy? And is there a female version that's similar but different? What do you mean by creepy? That that thing just gets thrown alone quite a bit. I've been called creepy just for interviewing people. Um, creepy to me is when either they're your friend and then they say weird sexual things that you didn't expect and do not want and they should okay. know because they're your friend. Or they're just creepy. It's like this very... It's mainly sexual, I think. They sort of transgress okay. sexually in ways that... And it's it goes from very minor behaviours to massive ones, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. come out of the blue. But mm-hmm. sort of a disrespect. They, it feels like you're not being seen as a person. You're only being seen as a potential sexual partner. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. not a very nice dynamic. Okay. Without... <clears throat> without apologizing or promoting that behavior whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Oh God, I'm in so much trouble. Um, how do you refocus uh, close friend's behavior uh, when he is filled with the uh, erotic um, attitude? What What's the, is there a proper way of taking that and then turning that back around so it doesn't happen? Is there a proper way of handling that rather than just labeling it as something you don't want? Like, is there any possibility that you have the power to change that behavior, especially if you're in a friendship? Well, sometimes in a friendship, something will sort of happen that you don't want, but isn't creepy. So it's not, it's not just the fact that it's a sexual thing or a sexual interest it's how they do it Hmm. and whether it's respectful and whether they step back when you don't respond Mm -hmm. so there's those sorts of things too creepy Mm -hmm. behavior is i think it's mainly creepy because they don't seem to care that it's upsetting or that you don't like it or that you don't want it or that you've made it clear i think creepy behavior is creepy because it it's either so overt that you're already in a situation with them or it takes no regard of you as a person. Or it, re- it reduces you in that moment. Yes. Like, I don't know how you solve that because, and I'm sorry, I'm not advocating this and I'm not apologizing for it and I'm not promoting it at all, but there is a certain sort of force within the male uh, that takes over. <laughs> the the person and and if the male is weak or isn't proper at that time he falls from grace he fall he diminishes his own honor let's say he dirties himself with that um but that that's a, that's a constant pressure for men it's a very constant pressure and when channeled correctly it causes them to be very ambitious when it's channeled incorrectly it causes them to be very abusive but I think there's a there's a root before the creepiness. It's it, this man is falling to a lower state, but that thing is always inside of him. Does that make sense? I think so, but some men do not behave in those ways. So there mm. are obviously ways to handle that impetus that are not mm. creepy and unpleasant. Yeah. 
You, you don't want the impetus, but you don't want the impotence either. You want like this very perfect balance. It's very important to have the impetus, but correctly channeled. Yeah, yeah, and articulated and uh, responsive to correction. Yes. Yeah. Yes, because if someone crosses a line and then the second you say, no, thank you, they step back, it's a completely different interaction than if they just keep going. Mm -hmm. Insistence, yeah. Persistence, follow through, which is good in certain areas of life. Uh, and sometimes that rewards. I mean, just thinking game, I'm not apologizing. I'm just thinking game theoretically. There, it, 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 That's a certain way of playing a game in order to get a certain result. And that might have certain outcomes. But that person's also risking your friendship and risking putting a lot of things on the line, risking his honor, risking your friendship, demeaning himself possibly in order to get something that might be rather short-sighted, a moment of pleasure, maybe like some offspring for the gene pool, who knows, but right. So that's a lower standard, but it, it's that lower standard is, uh, I'm not apologizing for it. I'm just trying to understand it. If we can understand it better than we can understand, you know, how can you correct that? How can you frame that correctly in order for it to not uh, be uh, normalized in society? Other than just saying men are creepy, men are sexual creatures. Well, no, I'm not saying men are creepy. Some men are creepy. Yeah, and if I were reading you the same way I get read by feminists, I would be taking what you're saying and and expanding it in an MRA sense and saying, you think all men are this, you think all men... I'm not doing that. I'm just saying there are certain uh, phenomena, patterns of behavior. How do we correct them? How do we understand them? I think there's a certain entitlement in Hmm. crossing boundaries and not caring that someone is uncomfortable. Entitlement. I think there is an entitlement, yes. There's a sort of, I want this, you don't want to give me this, but I want this, so I'm going to just keep going. You've made it clear, but I'm going to keep going because Mm -hmm. I want this. So I think there's an entitlement there. That is perhaps key. And is that, uh, well, I, I don't necessarily think that we need to go into this direction, but I'm going to do it anyways. Is that socially constructed or is that somehow uh, having to do with like personality traits that you find more of in men? Uh, disagreeableness, um, stuff like that. Less conscientiousness, perhaps. Like, you know, those psychological traits. They're not evenly distributed across the sexes. Women tend I to be more conscientious, right? I don't know why men would have some inborn entitlement. I don't see no functional value for that. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm saying maybe it's not entitlement in the sense that they think that they get their way because mm-hmm. it's owed to them. They just act entitled because they don't care. They want what they want. They don't care about all these titles and, and, and all this stuff. For that moment, they give up that and just go and pursue because they don't care. They're like it's it's not in, it's not entitlement. They just don't care. They just want what they want and they're going to strive for it in that moment or with with regards to that thing. It's not Maybe in they're all just men. What? So sorry what? It's it isn't in all men. I know men who are not like that. They may yeah. have the same characters. So therefore all men could handle it differently potentially or a majority of men could handle it differently potentially. You know, There's a lot of different kinds of men. My nan it's would really have said, if it can happen them. once, it can happen twice. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just yeah. 
couple of million times, a couple of billion. Well, okay, so it, it goes back down to expectations. And if, okay, again, proposition, if women want to be able to expect things from men, mm-hmm. they should also expect that men are going to expect things from women, right? It well, has to be a mutually right. beneficial yeah. transaction, right? Absolutely. And how you affect that has to be on a case-by-case basis, but we can say that there's certain behaviors that m- women don't want from men. Yes. Generally speaking, maybe some women like the odd phallus uh, digital upload, um, but... Uh, I would argue that, that finding a woman who wanted one out of the blue for no reason would be like looking for a unicorn. Finding a woman who wanted one from someone she liked with consent, probably much easier. Okay, yeah. Okay, you know? well, actually, that that's actually a good thing. So, so that though that's two different strategies. Let's just say strategies. Just thinking, uh, thinking uh, game theoretically. If a man is predisposed to that behavior and it costs him very little to do, he can just send that particular photograph to a thousand uh, recipients, and maybe one out of that thousand that he spent an hour doing this will give him something back. So he's just playing this game, right? And he's negatively in fact, uh, impacting all those thousands of women for that one reward, right? I don't know how you change that, but if he's not rewarded all the time and basically that is ignored and the the behavior that's rewarded is, uh, is uh, when that particular behavior or something like that is only ever acceptable within a certain prescribed relationship, uh, that's when it's actually rewarded, then you're actually going to select for men uh, who don't do that. But you have to ignore the spammers in order to select. Men are rewarding that behavior. I have yet to meet a woman who has enjoyed that out of the blue. So, Well, yeah, out of the blue. I'm saying out of the blue. Yeah. But yes. So what, what I'm saying is probably like one in a million. A I will say that what counts as reward is not always what you imagine in that situation. Um, I, this bloke decided that he was going to send me gifts of his penis, which points for creativity, but also no, thank you. I didn't know him from a bar of soap and he did it for a few days and I blocked him. And then he just kept creating new accounts to send me these, Mm. these very sad gifts of his penis, I will say. And I made the mistake of saying to him, please stop. This is not very nice. You know, oh, it's very uncomfortable. I did, yes. Massive mistake. And that, of course, was his reward, wasn't it? I think it went on about 18 months. And it oh, got Jesus. so intense. Yeah. Every day, almost. I would wake up. There would be new things in my inbox. Hmm. And he would keep changing his name. So I would not suspect. And people contact me for other things. Yeah. So I have to check my messages. Okay. And so I would open them. And, yeah. and then when I wouldn't respond because I stopped, I didn't respond again. He then started with women's pictures of women in various states of nudity. Yeah. It just went on and on and on because that yeah. was his reward. But I don't think women can be expected to know that that is someone's reward because telling someone you don't like a thing and you're uncomfortable should not realistically be a reward. So you're talking about a somebody who I would suppose is so far gone that nothing that we engineer socially is going to stop somebody of that behavior. I don't think it's entitlement. I think it's just brute, just 
lack of conscientiousness whatsoever. Plus, there's probably some sort of mental illness or uh, there's something going wrong off the charts for that. You can build a case that there should be some sort of separation between males and females on that. You could uh, argue for separate spaces between males and females to weed out that kind of behavior to save you as a person from that kind of behavior. Uh, and put it on society to change that somehow, or you just put up with that yourself, live through that, eventually it wanes, and then you live to tell the tale and say that this is an actual behavior. Um, I don't know what to do about it, but this is an actual behavior. I, I, I had a friend who was in the same line of work as me. She started uploading videos to YouTube, and she got so much attention, just crazy obsessive attention from men. And I would never have to deal with that behavior. So there's some sort of, I don't like entering into this in this particular way, but there's some sort of thing that I don't have to deal with that she does now because we're both doing the same job. She gets a lot more attention and a lot more reward, but she has to deal with these absolutely insane men making videos about her, right? Uh, so there, she, she's at this other level that I'll never attain uh, because I don't have those attributes that she had. Um, and I, I, I don't know how to solve for that. I do know how to not feel good about that, but I don't know how to solve for that kind of uh, response from a very specific subset of men who get that obsessive about that. I, think I don't maybe think you can solve for that. Other men can help solve that. If it's unacceptable between men to behave like that, then yeah, the man who well, does it is an outlier, you know? Exactly. But when we're talking about the internet and somebody's just in his room somewhere in Germany, like how are other men going to pressure that guy who's just uploading to YouTube? I guess we like complain about it on YouTube. Like, what do we do? Like, what do you do when we're in this de when this completely atomized state? He must have friends. He must have male. Well, one presumes he has male friends in his life who could say to him, hey, not cool. Stop it. Maybe. Like, yeah. I mean, if somebody's that far gone, they're not going to respond to that kind of stimulus. There's something either broken about them or they're reacting to something that they were built wrong in, in their childhood. But men who are less far gone than that, but who are still engaging in difficult behaviors, presumably mm. their friends could have a massive influence on how they treat women. Like how they talk mm. about women, the language they use about women, if other men pick that sort of stuff up. You know? Hmm. That's a good thing. I try to do what I can to model uh, gentlemanly behavior. I think I'm rewarded by being able to have some wonderful conversations with a variety of females because I'm acting in a certain way that gives me access to certain aspects of females well, being just dialogue, right? And I think that that, without me having to chastise anyone, is just showing, well, here's how you treat a woman, right? So I, I, I would think that what I'm doing is modeling the proper behavior because I am being rewarded by that by getting dialogues with females. Uh, so that, that's, that's just the other side of the coin is what I'm saying to uh, chastising men who act the wrong way is to just rewarding men way. who act in appropriate way is yeah. what you're saying. Well, me myself just taking the high road as much as possible to say that there's this other realm of discourse uh, with the female uh, 
you know, largely speaking, like there's this way that you can actually have friendships and get to see the humanity of women in a, a variety of ways if you forego certain behaviors, if you just don't act these different ways or don't allow yourself to uh, enact uh, certain drives or uh, impeti. It's so close, impetus and impotence. It's really close. I think male-female friendships are beneficial to both men and women, so it is an ideal. That's a that's a that's a good thing. I mean, if we can set our our sights on that, both people who are speaking on behalf of women and people who are speaking on behalf of men say, okay, well, there's all these systemic problems, and I'm talking about uh, men's rights activists and women's rights activists. There's all these different like societal problems and stuff. But if we actually try to figure out how to be friendship, how to how to model friendship between males and females, then we can actually work on these things together. Like if that was prioritized more, rather than these different groups trying to get their way or get their rights that that we're trying to figure out how to communicate to each other and understand each other's position that would probably be more impactful in the longer run than any sort of policy or picket line i think women will always need some policy and picket line too because there's things to fix right like Mm. you know there's things to fix but Mm. male female friendship is important some of the best friendships in life are with, with people who are different and men and women are different in some ways. So, mm. And also if more men and women were friends, perhaps there would be less, like proper friends, perhaps there would be less mm. difficulties for women because you have to respect someone to be their friend, like properly respect them. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think we can flush. This is probably my barbaric backwardsness. I don't think we can flush rudeness from the world. I don't think we can flush evil and violence from the world. I don't think we can flush uh, people taking advantage of the advantages that they have from the world. But we can consistently adhere to a higher standard um, consistently and aim for that uh, to the best of our ability and promote that. Passively, uh, I, not passively, but just in action, enacting that is much more important than just spouting off expectations. So you can reduce violence in various ways. You might not be able to eliminate any given bad behavior, but you can reduce it. You can make it less of a feature. Well, I think our, our society is trending towards that. I think. That yes, I think it is. Like we have less, don't we? Less violence than, say, 100 years ago. Mm hmm. Or certain other countries, I mean, uh, or certain other uh, yes. places in the world, maybe we could say, um, due to our, either to the codes that we've enacted or the material wealth that we've generated has caused violence to be less of a feature. I do worry when I see things like the women being attacked in Spain and France, that we could very mm. easily trend backwards towards more violence, especially against women. And that's why this particular uh, issue about the uh, certain forms of uh, certain forms of uh, progressive uh, desire for equality with regards to the banishment of female as a concept um, is to be f- struggled against because it gives access, and it actually, if you look at how it's being enacted just as a activist 
uh, activity um, is denigrating women, not only the concept of women, but individual women are being negatively treated by that. And so you should be able to see that this stuff is not honorable. <laughs> well, it's not honorable at all. It's, not, it's certainly not sportsmanlike if you want to look at the Olympics in the very yeah. least. So we have to get back some sort of non-relative, non- we need to get back to some sort of backbone with regards to morality. And that is very, we have to do that very carefully because if we start to enact certain rigid forms of morality, that's going to affect everybody. That's going to, that's going to, if we don't do that correctly, that's going to be stifling. Um, it's going to be too much of a pushback, right? Uh, to, to start demanding things of people uh, that diminishes their freedom of movement. Yes, it's maybe not so much going back to a morality, but conceiving a new morality that works for mm. people, works for more people. A revaluation of values. And yeah. I think that I think that gender stereotypes, I think play I think approaching gender stereotypes playfully and flexibly is a way to start playing around and figuring out and, and, and generating new ideas about the roles of male and female. And the, and the parameters and the patterns and what they want and how they can best serve each other. I think that, that just throwing stereotypes out the door, as we've shown in this conversation, eventually you're going to have to use stereotypes to model what you want in the world. Right? So there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a descriptive stereotyping and then there's a prescriptive stereotyping. And if we both say this is what we want from the ideal man and the ideal woman... And we can kind of tailor that through discussion by not being so rigid and breaking that discussion down. I think we can get somewhere and provide a path forward that's inspiring to people. Maybe. Maybe I'm being naive, though. I don't think you're necessarily being naive. I think we should always be aware when the standard is different between male and female. Because people are individuals. People have all sorts of traits. But if the standard they're being held to is different, I think you always have to answer why. Mm-hmm. Well, it's going to be different, though. The standard doesn't have to be different. How people might interact with it might be different. Okay. But, like, the uh, basic standard. Like, I don't know, say the societal standard on a very small scale would be that you open a door for someone who's coming straight behind you. Mm -hmm. That sort of standard would not have to be different just because people what if you're pregnant? Sex. If you're pregnant, well, would you be You would still presumably open the door for the person behind you. As they were right what, 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 what if you're pregnant and you have three children that you're trying to get through the door? Well, <laughs> then you would have to not open the door. But then you okay, could also so there's be a, a certain place lawnmower. Where... So, like, there would be exceptions, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't know why lawnmowers have featured so prominently. I love enough, this but... love seat lawnmower. We really need to get that to John Deere. <laughs> yeah, I think we do. But, yeah, so I think standards... A basic standard should be the same for both sexes. And anything that isn't the same for both sexes is a little bit of a, ooh, why? What's going on there? What's the thought process? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that you have to treat the sexes the same in all situations. For example, a young 30-year-old woman who gets on a train who's pregnant, standing up and giving your seat to her, obviously makes it's... much more sense than doing it for a young 30-year-old man who gets on the, the train. Yeah. But... It also makes sense for both men and women to stand up to give their seat to the pregnant woman because she's carrying a whole person and her legs are tired and we should care about that as a society. Hmm. 
Oh man, there's a lot of problematic things you just put in the water. But uh, I can <laughs> I can I can defer from your problematics to mine by saying, well, I think a men's a man is more likely to be more rewarded for treating a woman that way than a woman is. Uh, I think I, I get I would generally speaking, I would get more reward out of uh, deferring to females or helping females than a female would get for helping another female in a physical situation, sitting down, reaching a jar, carrying something heavy. And the reward for me is the recognition. Like I, I find ample value in being recognized and, and uh, being pleasing to a female like that pleases me to be pleasing to females right that's how i i grew up and that's just how i respond to them so i'm going to act differently towards females than males and i'm going to expect males to act differently towards females especially when it comes to uh you know helping being helpful being helpful well being helpful is a good standard for everybody yeah you know, except in a city where you're not supposed to talk to people at all because it's rude <laughs> are you are you a city girl very country girl. No, well, sort of somewhere in between, small town, small town girl. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's are, nice. Are, are you? Is this where you've always been? Yes. Township. Yeah. What do you guys yeah. call towns out there? Towns. We just call them towns. Cottages. Okay. <laughs> yeah, towns, villages are smaller, hmm. but I live in a town. It's a really nice town. It's only thirty thousand people, and okay. I don't know if that's big or small in America for a town. What um kind of uh, you when we started talking, you spoke of a very dire situation that you have had. Have you been? And you're very intelligent, so I'm wondering: Have you had formal schooling, or is this? Uh, are you autodidactic? I went to school every day until I was 14, and then I dropped out and have not done any official schooling since then. 14. Yeah. That's when you got hit. Well, I got hit at 12, but I got really hit at 14. <sighs> So, yeah so anything i've learned since then i've read hmm. and taught myself how in in your interactions over the past few years uh in this topic that we've been talking about and and over the internet and communicating what's something that you think that you that that situation has given you that you can give to other people what kind of perspective or or value do you see that you've gained from that not to diminish your suffering but i'm just wondering what is your suffering given you to give others that's a proper question well i think when you're my my dad used to say the onlooker sees most of the game and so in a sense when you have an illness or something that takes you out of society you kind of see society differently mm -hmm. you see you see the rules of society differently like things that people do you don't necessarily want to do because you've opted out of the rules um little things like i will happily go to the post box in my pajamas because life is short and letters need to be posted <laughs> but <laughs> you know technically it's kind of against the rules um but you see more of society you see i don't know you it, it generates a great affection towards other people for you i think when you're denied a chance to be with them you sort of you think very high i think very highly of people in general you know i have lots of perhaps spicy things to say but i do generally think people are lovely and mm. you, you feel like you see the lay of the land a little bit and so i think 
a lot of the women in this discussion are actually people who are disabled in some way or have an illness or quite a lot of them have ME and I think it's because we see society differently and so it makes it easier to think oh no this is going wrong Hmm. we better do something about this I am always uh, attracted to outsiders and by attraction I don't mean in a lower sense I mean that they are who I find most interesting and I don't know if I don't know where I got my outsiderness from because I, I feel like an outsider or like to be the outsider. So I place myself in positions where I'm kind of outside. And I think that's a valuable role. And I think that there's something about our society that, that has flipped that on its head where we're trying to, in the name of inclusivity, we're trying to destroy the outside, the outsider yeah. position. We're also trying to destroy difference. Even though the narrative suggests that difference is very important, mm. it is all a kind of destruction of difference. Because even the recognition of difference is considered hateful or bad or a form of bigotry in itself. Mm -hmm. But you can't respect people if you don't see difference. Because you can't see who they are at all. You have to have like a stand-in person, I think. Well, you certainly can't get excited over a person. They're just no. another collection of predictability. Also, the labels thing is a good way of not having to be vulnerable with other people because, and to not maybe not mm. even have a personality because you can just be these five labels that define who you are and that's who you are and people like you because you're those five labels and mm. you don't ever have to say anything wrong or do anything wrong or be interesting or it's very Take narrow. Risks. Yes. But then the internet doesn't encourage risks because the second you say something wrong or you do something wrong, people are very, very angry. <laughs> so yeah, it doesn't... No, I don't believe you. That doesn't happen. <laughs> it does. I hate to tell you this, but it does. It's never happened to me. It can't really happen that often. <laughs> well, it's definitely happened to me. <laughs> uh, have you have you stopped being risky when that happens? No. No. I'm... Why not? Because I'm bloody-minded as a person and... I, f I feel quite a lot of social when I was first turfing around and people were being <laughs> very unkind to me about it I just carried like a little cloud of shame around for like six months I'm like oh my god maybe I'm a terrible person okay. but I still did it because I knew it was the right thing really you know so I'm mm. quite susceptible to the feelings of social shaming but I'm not susceptible to actually altering my behavior because of it if I think I'm right <laughs> So <laughs> make of that what you will. Uh, I'm not going to say that I, 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 I'm the same in that respect because I don't want to tip my hand, but I'm pretty much the same in that respect. I feel the brunt of all the attention, but then I'm like, well, I'm not going to change how I'm behaving because my behavior is not wrong. I think we don't have to like people all the time. I think we've forgotten that online. Yeah. That you don't have, you you can dislike someone intensely for like a day or a, a week or over a specific thing, but yeah. still like other aspects of who they are. That's exciting, though, isn't it? I mean, if you if you allow for people to be dislikable in certain ways, if you give them a yeah. little wiggle room, I mean, I understand like there's a line that you cross, like like what, what you're talking about generally about being creepy or something like that. I'm like, yeah, I can say that certain people, uh, you see certain sides of their 
character and you're like, you know what, you've been hiding this and I don't think that this is something that I want to be associated with anymore. I think we've had a mutual experience over somebody like that. But there should be a, a ability to, to, to understand that, put that in perspective when you're talking about that and when somebody just mouthed off or, or has a position on something that you disagree with. It's quite enriching when someone disagrees. If they disagree in a way that you can respect because they're not awful about it, it's very enriching to know people mm. who think so differently that you can't actually agree with them, but you still like the way they think, or you're still interested in what they have to say. It's a, it's a beautiful thing. What, what's, if, you, if you had to choose a label, what's your label? Or five? Do you have like labels? <laughs> Well, obviously, I am a feminist, but... Oh. <laughs> a feminist. A feminist, yes. Um, okay. Well, I care about women immensely, so I'm always going to mm. fight that corner. But, Why do you care about women immensely? Well, because women are brilliant, for a start, but also because I think they've had a raw deal. And I also went to an all-girls school, and I think that may have set me up for life. So... <laughs> Hmm. You know, it was a it was a wonderful environment, and there were not many sisterhood. Of us yeah, I think so. But there were only eleven in my primary school, and eighteen not in the whole school, but in my class, and eighteen in my secondary school class. And so you get to know them. And girls' schools are really nice because you hear from other schools that maybe maths and science are boys' subjects, but you know nothing of this in a girls' school because all of the subjects are girls' subjects because it's only girls doing them. Yeah. So you have a different relationship. You actually have a different relationship to gender stereotypes as well, because they haven't reached you in your all-girls school mm -hmm. in a lot of situations. At the same time, that might give you the sense that they are acting outside of that environment in bigger ways than they actually are, right? If you don't have an experience of another place where men and women or males and females are mingling, you might assume something about that environment that's not necessarily true when you start to talk about stereotypes. You might start stereotyping stereotypes in, in <laughs> Like over Bushka doll, it just gets smaller and smaller and more of a problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you interested or do you end up Pooling your attention and your drive and your work into a work, into a book, into a blog, into a project or a product? Well, I have, I tend to have things on the go at the same time. You know, I have a couple oh, of things. Like, yeah, like, like plates. Yes. Yeah. And then, yeah. Um, I write poems. Oh, write, write, are they better write, than write, the ones you used to write? I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I've written enough of them now that they've evolved. They don't rhyme anymore. We gave up rhyming. Uh, um, yeah. Not sure why. I think non-rhyming poems say different things. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's difficult to rhyme and not come across as comedic. Um, yes, some poems to, are wonderful when they rhyme, like "This is yeah. the night train crossing the border, bringing the check in the postal order," sounding like the train, you know. Yeah, but. It's hard to rhyme poems and make them beautiful. Some people have that knack, but I, th I think I was a little bit too sort of, I don't know, dog roll with my rhymes. I'm better not rhyming. Dog roll. 
writing it down? Yeah. Okay. British vocab. <laughs> Gonna just uh, break that out at parties. <laughs> I found the dog roll in the hutch. <laughs> so yes, I write poems. I'm also doing part of the editorial team for the Radical Notion magazine with Jane Ooh. and all of that. That's very exciting. Um, lots of fun okay. There. That was written up in. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this. I think there's an embargo on this particular. It was written up in a brilliant book by a mutual friend of ours. Uh, that Ooh. Is... Oh, I can guess who that might be. Yes. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say about that because there's an embargo. But you should do it in charades. You should. You should give us clues. Uh, yeah. Um, rhymes with Boyce. Um, <laughs> I think that. And do Magellan. It, it rhymes with Magellan <laughs> Boyce. How about that? <laughs> Perfect. So the radical notion that and uh, is that a quarterly? Is that a monthly? Is that it's a quarterly. blog? Is it a magazine? It's a magazine. Yeah, you can get a physical copy, and it's really quite thick and wonderful. It's amazing, actually. <sighs> You're kind of yeah. describing it in a very erotic fashion. Now, thick. <laughs> I don't think so. You, get a, you can get it in a physical form. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm getting creepy, aren't I? Um, <laughs> just that. <laughs> just it's just about your magazine. It's not about you. <laughs> But yes, it's a great magazine, and the the women working on it are amazing, and it's just fantastic. Mm. And what what is it? Is this a what do you what is the point or the pro, yeah? What what is it about? What are you trying to do? With well, that? it's a physical women's space in a way because it's full mm. of women writers and women's ideas, and it's not all about this conversation. People write about other things. And it's a it's a physical space for women, I suppose, that goes around the world and arrives through people's letterboxes. Oh wow, letterboxes! Um, yeah, this is this is a British question. I know, but this okay. much about British culture. What what's found on page three of the Radical Notion? Not the sort of thing you'd find on page three of the Sun back in the day. Back in the uh, day, <laughs> historical times. Yeah, historical times. The nineteen seventies. <laughs> yeah, so. Pastry is probably still the um, what's the word for the thing that you Skeezy? look at all the no you know the oh, words are hard the thing that work with all the lists of what's going to be in the magazine the pastry is probably oh, still that index the table no. of contents yeah table of contents that's the one oh, I knew it was okay. in there somewhere huh. yeah so it, it's a feminist magazine and you uh, you all are exploring or importing a bunch of different views of what it is yeah. to be female and what it is to be political female yeah. or, or, or just yes. a, a regular non-political female or it, it's what? basically women submit ideas and their writings oh. there's some poems in it too um okay. it's it's really good wow um is are men allowed to get it in their litter boxes absolutely yes um, our critics like, say it contains too much Fanny and Witches, but I consider that to be an endorsement. <laughs> Wait, too much, too much what and what? Fanny and Witches was the critique we got, I think, from Sally Hines. Fanny? You do not, you don't know what this word means. What, Fanny and Witches? Yeah, Fanny and Witches. I really don't think I can explain Fanny to you. <laughs> well, I, I know what Fanny is, but like, are, are you? It's a cut. I just don't know. It's like it's a butt, right? So it. No, it, it is not a butt. Oh, okay. So it, it's the um, <laughs> it's the other. It's the front hole. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
sorry, but we're going there. That's a universal term at this point. In what universe, but, however? It's San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, that seems fair. Okay, in San Francisco. <laughs> Too much Fanny and witches. Oh, man, I really want to look at this thing now. You should. Um, our re- most recent cover, which I am so proud of, even though I had nothing to do with it, um, is a sculpture by this wonderful artist, I think from Spain, and it's of a massive vulva cut into the side of the the hills. I just love this. I keep showing it to people. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is. Uh, I think it's hilarious, though, that women in... When they get together, they start like making vulvas uh, out of the sky, and they just inscribe that. There's something magical about inscribing that into places. I've I've seen it. I've witnessed it. They make they make lollipops out of it. They uh, go in groups and expose themselves to the elements. It's just it's an odd little thing, and I think men has have that impulsion too. We 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 kind of start creating phalluses wherever we go, in a way. It's nice to be okay with one's body, isn't it? And I'm I'm fine with it. I just you just don't want to trip and fall into it if you can help it. Fall into what? <laughs> like the vulva hill, you know. It's a good way the, to go. The great chasm. Um, I it's guess the most be... beautiful piece of art. I mean, it's all different colors. It's fantastic. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, she's so talented, and the fact she mm. let us put it on the front of the magazine. Is remarkable and brilliant. Wow. So wait, is this monthly or quarterly? I think you're right. Quarterly. 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 So every three okay. months. And uh, people can find that at the radicalnotion.fem.com? I don't think it's .fem.com, but if they go on Twitter to the Radical Notion Twitter oh. account, they should be able to find all the information. And and so you're doing that. Do you have anything else that you do you put do you you voiced your poetry? upon the public in a certain place obviously i like to go out and just hand it to people you know oh really you do like <laughs> <No>. flyer style <laughs> although my nan used to carry my bad rhyming poetry in her handbag and when she met people at the bus stop she'd be like here listen to this and then she would get it out of her bag and she would and i wrote one poem i, I wrote was about a murder that happened in england a really like racially charged terrible murder and it was like this really long ballad and so she used to inflict this on strangers at bus stops and in cafes and stuff. <laughs> what the heck, man? <laughs> Stop it. She could not be stopped. And when I went through like a really emo type stage of sort of, mm. I don't think we had emo back then, more like sort of grunge type stage at sort of no, 13, emo, yeah, 14, yeah. and wrote really abysmal poems about, you know, emotional hardship and just really terrible teens. She did that too. Yeah, they were, that was inflicted on the world as well. <laughs> what, what about music? What's your favorite band lately or uh, album or something? I'm listening to a lot of nineties Britpop. So like probably my, my, probably my favorite album at the moment is um, Pulp's Common People. I think it's called Common oh, okay. People. The the track on it that I like the most is Common People. And it has things like Disco 2000 on it. I'm a bit obsessed with that. Hmm. And uh, the Lars, There She Goes, and a bit of Blur as well, Park Life. 
Okay, okay. I, I get you, I get you. No, not Radiohead, though. There is a bit of Radiohead on there. I don't know if they really count as Britpop. I suspect they do. But they're not the same sort of feeling as yeah. the others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What, what does that remind you of, or why did you get? Why have you gotten back into that lately? Did you just kind of stumble back into it, or was it? I think it's very happy. Okay. You know, it's very uplifting. You can't yeah. feel bad listening to Disco Two Thousand. Huh. It's just it's good music as well. It has a feeling to it. I don't know what the feeling is. It's not really nostalgia because. Mm-hmm. In the 90s, I was very small and listening to music from the 70s at that time. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't have any like connotations for me or reminiscences, but mm-hmm. I really like it. It was like and, vintage red hot chili peppers and stuff like that, you know, okay. like from the thousands. <laughs> Not their newer stuff, which I have no idea if it's any good. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew them in the 90s, and then I kind of left off and went to other places. Why did you, why have you, how did you stay happy? Or you, you seem like a positive person. How did you keep your positive charge through all that you've been through? Well, it's probably luck to some extent, because I think how people struggle emotionally isn't a sort of reflection on them. You know, people have it easier or harder in their emotional feelings, but I've also fought for it too. I think it's very important to stay positive. I don't think it would be easy to survive something overwhelming without being as positive as possible. Hmm. Um, I'm quite easily made happy. So even when things are really bad, if something minorly good happens, I tend to cheer back up again. So that's quite useful <laughs> as a mm. skill. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel sorry for myself sometimes, but you have to mm. sort of jostle yourself out of it, don't you? But actually, there's a wonderful line in a poem. I think it's Robert Frost. He says, I never saw a wild thing sorry for itself. So whenever I feel very sorry for myself, I decide mm. that I just have to be a wild thing and just pull my socks up. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know. Or take them off and then let somebody else pick them up. Yes, that too. <laughs> so, and what gives you hope for the future? Do you think that things are going to be okay with regards to what we've been talking about? Uh, I mean, not men and women, but. Uh, <laughs> the... I think this debate, I like to think we're gaining ground. And I like to think in five to 10 years, it will be a thing of the past. Um, I like to think that we'll get to a place in society where we will make sure trans people have like employment rights in America or whatever they're lacking and people are okay with people who sort of transgress what we think they should be doing. But at the same time, we haven't sacrificed women's rights on the altar of that. Hmm. I like to think there'll be a middle ground that we'll find. I think we are doing a lot better. Three years ago, you couldn't really talk about this without... Mm -hmm total vilification and now i find people are more willing to listen to me when i say Mm. something and to talk it through and to say what they think and they have issues with it too but they also most people seem to want to do what's fair for everyone a lot of people Mm. just want a good outcome for everyone involved Mm. and that's probably enough if everyone can push towards that 
I'm going to stop recording. Okay. Are you okay with that? Yeah. Congratulations for reaching the end of the discussion. If you enjoyed it, do be sure to leave a review or a comment or a thumbs up or whatever you need to do to show that glorious algorithm that this is some good stuff. And do be sure to go and check that back catalog as it is brimming full of fantastic conversations. Links to provide monetary support are down there in the description as well. Have a good night.